in chapter 6. I want to take this time actually to help us to get a big picture view or approach so that we can understand the details that we're going to start getting into in Revelation here. Um, As we embark upon chapter 6 and then all the way through chapter 18, basically Revelation tells us the accounts of what is going to happen during the Great Tribulation on earth, those seven years. And that's the bulk of Revelation. Now, it it goes back and forth. It shows what's going on in heaven and what's going on on earth at the same time. And that's the vision that John's receiving. But before we get into the details of each of the seals that we see in chapter 6 and 7 and 8, I thought today we would kind of take a step back and I want to, to kind of give you an overview of the Great Tribulation so that we understand the time period, the reference of all these details that we're going to be studying as we look at, as we begin in chapter 6. Because the Great Tribulation is going to be a period of time in Earth's history that is comparable to nothing else that has ever happened. It is a time of great suffering. It's a unique time that is characterized by extreme happenings and extreme events which have never happened on this earth. And as a result, there are millions of people who are going to die and suffer through this time. So before we get into the details, as chapter 6 unfolds, I want to go to the end of chapter 6 and just read a couple of verses to you because this kind of summarizes the sentiment of people who are going to be on the earth during this time period. So at verse 15, um, here's what we see. This is when once the judgments of God have started, and we'll read that in chapter 6 when we get to it. But verse 15, it says, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Let's take a minute and pray, and then we will look at the great tribulation together. Lord and God, we just come to you again and enter into your word. And we need your help to understand these things. Many of these things are difficult just from the reading of them. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our minds. We need your spirit to give us understanding, to illumine us to the truth of these things. And, Lord, even though as we look at some of these details of things yet to come, we may think that they really don't pertain to us, but there is a lesson for all of us in it. So, Lord, just teach us today. I pray that you would give us the lessons that you want us to learn. Lord, I pray now that as I speak that you would use me as your mouthpiece and your instrument. Lord, I need your help and I need your strength. I need your wisdom. So fill me with your spirit, I pray, and use me to proclaim your truth that we need to hear. Guide us through your word today, we ask. And in all that we do and say, may you receive the glory and honor. And we give you this time now in Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 15 through 17, we're going to get to this as we get into chapter 6 in more detail. But chapter 6 basically is Christ starting to open the seals of the book. Now remember we saw this in chapter 5. Chapter five starts. We've, chapter 4 starts with um, 
John being ushered into heaven, into the throne room of God, he sees God on the throne, or really he sees God's glory coming from the throne. He sees the cherubim, the 24 elders representing the raptured church, glorifying and praising God and worshiping him before the throne. And that's chapter 4. Chapter 5 starts with the Lamb stepping forward to take the book out of the hand of God, the Father. And this book is the title deed to the earth or title deed to the universe. It is the creation that God has created but Satan has usurped through the power of sin from mankind. And he has stolen all the blessings from us through sin. And so Christ steps forward to reclaim that. And that's what this scroll is or this book that we see in Revelation chapter 5. And it is sealed with seven seals. That's what chapter one, or verse 1 of chapter 5 says. Now, we saw that this is an important document, a legal document, the title deed to the earth, again. And so each of these seals represents a part of this document that Christ is going to open and reveal in time. He's the only one who is worthy to do this because he has been slain. That's what the Bible tells us in chapter 5. And so that's the, leading, the story leading up to the beginning of chapter 6. Christ is standing now in the throne room of God with the scroll in his hand, and he begins to open the seals, and each of those seals reveals how he will reclaim the, the earth and all of creation for the glory of God. The end of chapter, six, uh, chapter 5, I'm sorry, verses 14 Uh, 15 through 17, is man's response who is on the earth to those judgments that are poured out. And just from their response here, we can see that it is not going to be a fun time to be alive. It is going to go way beyond anything we could ever imagine as far as catastrophe and suffering that anyone on this earth has experienced up to this point. And so this is outside the bounds of normal for anybody as far as human beings are concerned, is way beyond anything that we can imagine. And just the description here, in verse 15, it says, The kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, every bondman, every free man. That leaves nobody out. It's every level of society, every level of uh, authority, Every aristocrat, every bureaucrat, every poor person, it doesn't matter where you are. There's no one that's going to be exempt from this. And all of them, look at verse 16, it says, And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now we looked at the Lamb in chapter 5. In fact, we contrasted how Christ is called the Lion of Judah, that judge, the great judge who's going to come and judge the earth. But then when John looks, he sees the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And here we see the wrath of the Lamb. That's one of the paradoxes of Scripture. You think of a Lamb, and you don't think of wrath. You think of a Lamb, you think of gentleness, of uh, meekness, quietness. You know, that gentle, small, little lamb. And as, we, as I mentioned, the word lamb is talking about the little lamb. That's literally what it means. The little lamb that the Hebrews were supposed to take into their house for four days before they sacrificed it at Passover. That is Christ the lamb. And now it says 
here the wrath of the Lamb is going to be poured out on mankind. So we can't even begin to understand from our experience or in our perspective what the Great Tribulation is going to be like. And I don't think any of us is going to want to go through that. But today I want to give you some details about this time, just so we have a better understanding overall, the big picture approach to the Great Tribulation. And then as we look at the details, some of those will fill in the holes and start to make more sense than if we just tried to piece the Tribulation together through just the details. So first of all, the timing and nature of the Great Tribulation. Now, I've learned as a pastor never to assume anything about how much people know who I'm teaching, okay, because I've fallen into the trap before of just assuming people know things and I say things and afterwards someone will come up and say, hey, I don't understand what you were talking about when you said this. And so I'm trying to take this down to the basic level so we can all be on the same page together as far as the Great Tribulation is concerned. But the Great Tribulation is that time period that's described in the Bible, and it's not just in Revelation, it's talked about through many of the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament prophets. And it's seven years of great suffering and war and extreme natural disasters that are the wrath of God poured out on the earth and on mankind for sin. That's what its purpose is, okay? That is the nature of it. In Daniel chapter 12, we're going to study this in Bible study when we get to Daniel 12, but in verse 1 of that chapter, it describes this time as a time of trouble such as has never been since there was a nation till that time. Now, Daniel's looking at it in reference to Israel. And so he says, or actually the angel is describing this time period to Daniel in this verse, and he says, it is a time like no one has ever experienced and like has never existed ever since Israel was a nation. Now you think about Israel's history and the suffering that they've been through. I mean, they started with 400 years in captivity in Egypt. That was the beginning of their nation. And then they're finally led out by God. They go through the wilderness for 40 years. They finally arrive at the promised land, and they get established in that home, but it doesn't take long several hundred years and then all of a sudden they're not worshiping God they're worshiping idols and God has to send in Assyria first after the kingdom splits and take the northern tribes captive and destroy that area and then it didn't take long after that for the southern tribes to fall and Jerusalem fell to Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and the nation was gone as far as being a physical nation on earth but they didn't disappear But then for several hundred years, they were in captivity, spread across the world, not in Jerusalem, not possessing their land. God brought them back to their land with Ezra and Nehemiah under the decree of Cyrus to rebuild Jerusalem and the city. And they were there, but not under their own government for another several hundred years. And then Christ comes on the scene. And we know after Christ died, it didn't about 30 years or 40 years after Christ died, Rome got sick of the Jews and came in and just destroyed Jerusalem, killed millions of Jews, took the temple apart piece by piece until there was nothing left of it. And from that point until today, the Jews have really never been in control of Jerusalem as a whole or had possession of the land that God has promised them. They've never had the whole land. But through history, their history is one of suffering and persecution. 
And we ask the question, why? These are God's promised people, God's chosen people, because they rejected him, because they would not obey. You know, you can go into recent modern history. You go back to the Holocaust. Millions of Jews killed at the hand of a dictator. But if you go back farther than that, there's incidences in history when Jews were targeted over and over and over by evil to be destroyed, to be wiped off the face of the earth. And even today, there's nations who want to obliterate the nation of Israel. And so Jewish history is one of suffering, of turmoil, of war. That basically defines most of the time that they've existed on this earth. And so Daniel 12, the angel is looking back at all that. When, when Daniel receives this vision, he's basically in the future, looking into the future at this time called the Great Tribulation. And the angel says to Daniel, this seven years for Israel especially will be a time worse than they have ever endured before. And you think, how could that be? But that's the truth. So that, that gives us an indication of how bad the tribulation is going to be. In Revelation chapter 6, as we start to see these seals opened by Christ in this book, you'll see that the first half of the tribulation, and that's the mild part, the first three and a half years, that includes a time of false peace at first, but then very quickly it escalates into wars, and then it's followed by famine, and then death by disease and fighting, and death by wild animals, it even says. That doesn't sound like a fun time to be alive, but that's the mild part. The first three and a half years of the tribulation is going to be a relative time of peace on the earth, especially for Israel. They're going to have very little persecution, at least internally, at that point. But that's the mild part. And as you get further into Revelation, as you get to the end of chapter 6, and then into chapter 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, all the way up through chapter 18, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. Because the seventh seal reveals seven trumpets, and then the seven trumpets reveal seven bowls, and all of them are judgments that come from the hand of God, and each one gets successively worse as they fall upon each other. And just looking at chapter 6, when we get there, you're going to see, man, this is bad enough. I can't imagine how it could get worse than this, but that's what it's going to be. So as you get into Revelation, what you start to see is severe natural disasters such as devastating earthquakes like you've never seen before. The Bible says that they're so bad that they literally will move mountains off of their foundations. Not one mountain, but mountains. They will change the geography and the topography of the earth. They are so bad. We will have rainstorms of hail and fire and blood. The moon will turn red. The sky, the the sun will be darkened. I mean... We've never experienced anything like this in the history of the earth. Now, we're not going to get into all those details today, but I want you to get just a a little bit of an understanding of how bad that time is going to be. And not one single person, if they really understand the tribulation, is going to want to be alive during that period. The timing of the tribulation... Is described in Daniel chapter 7. And we've been studying Daniel in Bible study, so some of this is review for those of you who have joined us for Bible study, but it's important to understand the timing of it. 
In Daniel chapter 7, verses 24 through 26, Daniel is getting this vision in answer to a prayer that he has, and God sends an angel to him, and the angel gives him this vision and then explains it to him. And this is the explanation. He sees ten horns, and the angel says, The ten horns of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different or diverse from the first. And he shall subdue three kings. This right here is our introduction to the Antichrist. That is going to be the central figure during the, the tribulation time. Daniel doesn't understand all of that at this point, but here the Antichrist arises. So we know during the tribulation there's going to be a government worldwide that is ruled basically by ten governing powers. We don't know if that's countries or kings or whatever, but that's what the Bible says. Ten governing powers, that's of the horns. And then one other horn shall arise, and he will put down three of those kings or powers. That's the Antichrist. And he will take full control of the earth at that point. And it says in verse 25 of Daniel, He shall speak great words against the Most High. He shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. That phrase in Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, talks about the wickedness that the Antichrist will bring upon the earth, and it says he will do this for a time, times, and a dividing of time. That's a year, two years, that's three years, and a half a year. So three and a half years. And it's talking about the second half of the Great Tribulation, of that second half of the seven years when the Antichrist will just wreak havoc on the earth. Now, I want you to understand this. As much evil and bad that's going to be perpetuated by the Antichrist the judgment here that's being given or poured out upon the earth is not the work of Satan. He contributes to it. But it is the wrath of God being poured out on the earth like never before. It's not that God says, okay, do what you want. This is specifically poured out by God in judgment upon the earth. So everything you see in Revelation is God giving his judgment to people who are in sin and to a wicked earth. He uses the Antichrist as part of that. But it's not the work of Satan. This is the work of God. We have to understand that because this is God's judgment. And God must exercise judgment upon sin. And this is the culmination of that in the earth. So in Daniel chapter 25, we see the Antichrist. And then verse 26 says, But the judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion and consume and destroy it unto the end. So the Antichrist is not going to last very long. At the end of that time, he's going to be destroyed. And if we read Scripture and as we study Revelation, you'll understand that at the end of the tribulation, Christ comes back in his second coming and sets up his kingdom where he destroys all of his enemies, including the Antichrist. And then everyone who is left on the earth will bow down before Jesus Christ. And he will be king, literally. For a thousand years. So in Daniel chapter 7, we have this introduction. Now, I didn't read the earlier part of Daniel 7, but what the angel reveals to Daniel in Daniel 7 is four kingdoms. And these are the same four kingdoms that Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about way back in Daniel chapter 2. He sees this image. And if you're familiar with this image or the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the image has a head of gold and shoulders of silver and then thighs of, of bronze and then the feet um, are, are clay and bronze or copper. Okay? And then in this image or in this dream that Nebuchadnezzar is having, this great stone not cut with hands 
of man comes out of the sky and smashes the feet of the image, and then the whole thing just crumbles to dust. Okay, That rock is a picture of Jesus Christ. But Daniel has a similar image later of four beasts rising out of the sea. And the angel says these, these four things, these, the four parts of the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw and the four beasts that you saw represent four main kingdoms that will come on the earth to oppress Israel. That is their purpose. Okay, God uses these four kingdoms to judge Israel. And those four kingdoms start with Babylon, with Nebuchadnezzar, and then they go to Persia, and then after Persia came Greece, and if you know history, after Greece came Rome. Okay? Now, Rome was the fourth kingdom. And we say, well, the Roman Empire's gone. No, it's not. The system and thinking and culture and, and political structure that Rome had still endures today. And so what we see all around us in the world really is nothing more than an extension of the Roman Empire in a biblical term, specifically and especially in relation to Israel. Okay, So we have to understand that much of it because if we get that part of what Daniel is getting from the angel, then we start to understand how all the other pieces fall in place. So this fourth kingdom, Rome, or more specifically, the extension of that kingdom, the system that came out of Rome, is our modern-day political and cultural system that we live in. Now, if you look around, uh, you'll see evidences of that all around you. How many of you have a clock with Roman numerals on it? Where do you think Roman numerals came from? Our calendar is built around a Roman system. Okay? There are many aspects of our society and culture and just the way we live that came out of the Roman Empire. So really, the Roman Empire still exists. We live in it today. That is the system we live in. Okay? So when we see this introduction to the Antichrist, the central figure of the, the tribulation in Daniel 7, it is in this context of this Roman Empire, the last empire that will persecute Israel that will hold them down, that will uh, bring basically wreckage upon them. Remember, they're the ones that destroyed the temple in in Jerusalem in 70 AD, and that continues. The the Gentiles took over Jerusalem at that point and have never let go of it since. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, who controls Jerusalem? Now, off the top of our head, we go, well, Israel. It's part of Israel, right? Partly right. Israel controls Jerusalem part of Jerusalem. The other half of Jerusalem is under Palestinian control. And that's why right on the the, uh, Temple Mount, there sits a Muslim mosque called the Dome of the Rock, because Israel does not control that piece of Jerusalem at this point. Someday they will, because the Bible tells us they're going to rebuild the temple on that spot. And so that mosque has to go away. But for now, they do not have control of Jerusalem. Now, I give you that point because it plays an important part in understanding the tribulation as a whole. I'll get to that. So anyway, what we see in Daniel 7 is the Antichrist becomes the central figure of the tribulation period. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel receives more information and a vision about the timing of the great tribulation. And in verses 24 through 27, he learns about 70 weeks Now, just to give you a quick background, Daniel knows that God is going to judge Israel in Babylon and Persia 
for 70 years. That's what God told him in Jeremiah. Jeremiah the prophet prophesied that Israel's judgment would be 70 years, and then they would go back to their land. And so Daniel is praying, God, we're almost at the end of the seven years. When is this going to happen? And God sends an angel again to answer his prayer. And basically he says, okay, well, the 70 years is about up, but I'm going to tell you about 70 weeks. And what that means is 70 groups of seven years, which is 490 years. And so the 70 weeks is introduced in Daniel 9. Now, understanding the 70 weeks then gives us an understanding of the tribulation and why it is and where it's going to fall and what its purpose is. In describing these 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9, the angel gives Daniel this description. He says, first, it's going to be broken up into three sections. The first section is going to be seven weeks or 49 years, seven groups of seven years. 49 years. That first group of 49 years began when Cyrus, I'm I'm sorry, not Cyrus, Cyrus gave the first command, but began when Artaxerxes gave the fourth command to Israel to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and the city. And Israel went and started to go. They had about 49,000 people that went back and started to work on the city at that point. It took them 49 years from that spot to complete the wall and the temple so the city was livable and so the houses and buildings inside of it. So there's your first group of 49 years, that first seven weeks. Then the angel said, then there's going to be another 62 weeks from that period until the Messiah is revealed or the prince is revealed, talking about Jesus Christ. And if you look at the calendar of history, from the time the second temple was finished until Christ rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday with tens of thousands of people hailing him as the king of the Jews, the Messiah that came from Christ, it was 434 years, exactly 62 weeks, just like the angel said it would be. And so that was prophecy being fulfilled. And then the angel says, and after those 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. Now, we're right before Palm Sunday and Easter. This is the remembrance. Next week, we'll remember the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem. The week after that, we remember the day that Jesus rose from the grave after he had been crucified. So the 62 weeks, or that first 69 weeks, if you put the first seven weeks and the 62 weeks together, then you get... 483 years to the point where Christ rode into Jerusalem, and the angel says, after that point, the Messiah is cut off. And we know he was crucified. He was rejected by the Jews, and he was crucified. Now, that single signals for us a pause. So we're at 69 weeks fulfilled up to Christ riding into Jerusalem. And then there's a pause. And in that pause or in that gap, the angel says there's two things that are going to happen. Number one, Messiah shall be cut off, Christ's crucifixion. It came, obviously, not even a week after he rode into Jerusalem. But the second thing, he says, is the people of the prince that shall come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. They will destroy Jerusalem and the temple. The temple still stood when Jesus was crucified. But in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed it, as we've already said. 
And the angel predicted that. He said, during this gap, Christ is going to be crucified, Messiah cut off, and the people of the prince that shall come. He wasn't talking about the king who was ruling at that time or an emperor of the Roman Empire. He was talking about the people of the empire through which eventually the Antichrist would come out of will destroy the city and the temple. And that happened in 70 A.D., And so the angel tells us basically here and tells Daniel that the people from which the Antichrist are going to come is an extension of the Roman Empire. And then he talks a little bit more about this prince that shall come um, and how he's going to bring wars and all kinds of things in the earth. So here we have another allusion to the Great Tribulation period because that's when the Antichrist will appear. But there's a gap between this 69th week And the 70th week, and the 70th week is the Great Tribulation, the last seven years of the 490 years. So why is there a gap? Well, the Bible explains that to us, okay? There's a long pause of undetermined length after the 69th week, and it includes what's called the time of the Gentiles. Now, the time of the Gentiles extends before it started, and it goes all the way up until Christ sets up his kingdom on earth. What it means is that the Gentiles will control Jerusalem and the area in which the temple should exist. And we saw, ever since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 586 B.C., it has never been completely under Jewish control since then to this day. We are in this time of the Gentiles. Christ referred to this time period in Luke chapter 21. In verses 20 through 24, he says, And when ye shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out. And let none of them that are in the countries enter thereinto. For these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child, to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people." And I'm going to stop there for a second before I read verse 24, because most people will look at that, and many commentators and and scholars will look at that and say, okay, well, yeah, that's the future uh, destruction of Jerusalem, and that all happened up to 70 A.D. and then a few years beyond that. And it did. But then it says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles shall be fulfilled. And so what we saw in 70 AD was just the beginning or an extension of that destruction that's brought upon Jerusalem and Israel by Gentiles that is extended to modern day. And so we live in what's called the time of the Gentiles. The end of the time of the Gentiles is when Jesus sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem and restores the city and the entire land to Israel, just like God promised. That happens after the tribulation. And so this last seven weeks of Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks is the tribulation period. We're waiting for that to happen. But right now we're in that gap that happens before that. So the final seven weeks here begin right after the rapture of the church. And you say, well, how do you know that? We go to Revelation chapter 6. Okay? In Revelation chapters 4 and 5, 
Remember, I reminded you, we have been studying John in the throne room of God. And in the throne room of God are the 24 elders. The 24 elders represent the church in heaven. So as John is viewing this throne room of God at that period in his vision, the church is in heaven. They have been brought up to heaven already. So the rapture has happened. After we see John and the 24 elders, chapter 5 is the lamb, chapter 6 is the lamb opening the scroll and the seals, and the scroll and the seals begin the great tribulation. So the rapture has to happen before the tribulation starts. Okay? Now I'll get into that more in just a minute. Okay, but I want you to understand the timing of this of where this great tribulation is going to happen, because it is that final seven weeks of Daniel's prophecy. It is the the end, really, of the earth as we know it, and it will be the worst time on earth because God's wrath will be poured out in its extreme like it has never been experienced before. And in the great tribulation, in that seven years, the Antichrist will become the central figure. And the first half of the tribulation, and we'll see this, There's a time of peace. Actually, the Antichrist makes a time of peace with Israel. He makes a peace treaty with them for seven years, and Daniel predicts that as well. He says there's going to be the prince will make a treaty with them for a week. Okay? That's seven years. And that's talking about the seven years. And then halfway through that, the Antichrist is going to break this peace treaty, and literally on earth, all hell will break loose at that point, and especially against Israel. Okay? So when we talk about timing, this is a future event that hasn't happened yet. Now, some people will try to tell you that this great tribulation is not really seven years. It's just an extended time period of suffering and turmoil, and it's already happened right after the death of Christ because you saw Israel go through extreme suffering and persecution and massacre. Israel was destroyed, and so that's all been fulfilled. And so all we're waiting for at this point is for Christ to come back and establish his kingdom. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Let me get more into detail about its purpose, first of all. The purpose for the tribulation, as I've already said, is for God to execute judgment upon sin in its finality. Okay, It's not the time when God will eventually send all people to hell who are sinners and unredeemed. That is coming. That will be at the end of that period. But it is the time when all people who are on earth will experience the fullness of God's wrath in their physical life. So that's the first purpose, is for God to satisfy the justice, his justice in executing judgment upon a sinful world that rebels against him and rejected his son. The Bible tells us over and over, God is patient, God is merciful, God's a God of love. And we see evidence of that over and over and over and over again. Lamentations 3, the prophet Jeremiah says, his mercies are new every morning, great is his faithfulness. And that is true. The only reason we are not consumed, Jeremiah says, is because of God's mercy. The reason we are alive today is because of God's mercy and patience with us. When we get to the great tribulation, that patience ends, and the full wrath of God will be poured out to judge sin. Nahum The Old Testament prophet in chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this, God is jealous 
And the Lord revengeth, and the Lord revengeth, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. It means he will not let them continue to sin without punishment. So in that verse in Nahum, we see, yeah, we do experience the patience, the mercy of God, but that will come to an end as far as sin on the earth is concerned, and it's going to be judged. If you look at Revelation chapter 3, if you're still in Revelation 6, you can just turn a page back. Revelation chapter 3, we looked at some of the churches that John knew about in his day that Christ wrote letters to. One of the last ones was the church of Philadelphia. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, he's talking to the church of Philadelphia. That was one of the churches that there was no condemnation for. Church of faithful believers, even though they were persecuted, they trusted and were faithful to God. And look at verse 10 in chapter 3. He says, Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. Now there Christ is talking about the great judgment of the great tribulation. I will keep you from that. I will spare you from that. He says, if you follow me, if you continue being faithful, you're not going to have to go through that judgment. Now I know he's talking to the church of Philadelphia here, but these letters are to all of us, to all churches through all time. That's why he said, he that has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just this church, but all churches. And so this promise is to us as well. God will spare those who are faithful from the great judgment, not just the great wrath in hell, but the great judgment of this seven-year period of the tribulation. And he's telling this church here, that's, that's what I'm going to do for you, for those who are faithful. Okay, he, in, this, in this verse, he says, this period is for a time to try those that dwell on the earth. Now, the word dwell there is an important word because it's not just people who live here. In the Greek, the context means those who have a steadfast affinity and almost like anchored to. It's a permanent location. And so what Christ is saying is, I'm going to judge those whose whole lives are geared toward earthly existence. Sinners who don't care about Christ, right? So it's referring to the time of tribulation when God will judge all people on the earth who are not faithful to him. Now, when the tribulation starts, the church is gone. So who's left? Sinners. Now, during the tribulation, some of them will get saved. The Bible says that. But they're all sinners, They've all rejected God at the beginning of the tribulation, so they will all experience the wrath of God for that sin. And here in Revelation 3, he says, I'm going to spare those people who are faithful from that judgment. This word, them that dwell on the earth, is a very strong expression that refers to where your permanent home is. In fact, the, verse, uh, the, the word, same word for, uh, in the Greek for the dwell on the earth is used in Colossians 9 where it says the fullness of Christ, uh, fullness of God dwells in Christ. I read that verse this morning. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. Does the fullness of God ever exit Christ? No, because he is the essence of God. He is God. And so it's a permanent state. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, Christ, uh, Paul says that Christ dwells in the believer's heart. 
If we are saved, is there a time when Christ will ever leave us? No, it's a permanent state. Same word, okay? Christ stays in our heart. That's what the verse says. And so in Revelation 13, 8, actually, uh, it repeats this. There's seven times in Revelation that uses this phrase, those that dwell on the earth. Revelation 8, it describes these people, and it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. It's talking about people, and this is the fulfillment of Philippians chapter 2, where it says, every knee will bow of things in earth, of things in heaven, of things below in the earth, and confess that he is Christ, that he is the Lord. And here in Revelation 8, 13, 8, when we get there, we'll see all unsaved humanity will actually bow before God and acknowledge him as Lord, but it's too late, okay, because they've rejected him. Their minds, their lives, everything about them is fixed to the earth. They have no spiritual vision. So the first purpose of the tribulation is to satisfy God's justice on sin. And it's going to happen physically on the earth. The second purpose in the tribulation, surprisingly, is to bring people to salvation. Now, I was taught when I was young that people who enter the tribulation, you know, they miss the rapture, they go into the tribulation, there's no other chance for them to be saved. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know this. The Bible talks about people who will be saved during this great time of persecution and suffering. In this seven years of the tribulation. If you're already in in Revelation 6, turn over a page to chapter 7. Okay? And again, we'll study this in depth when we get to chapter 7. But in Revelation chapter 7, look at verse 9. It says, After these things I look, this is John speaking, And I beheld a great multitude which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, palm branches were in their hand, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels are standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Now, we've seen this before, right? Didn't we just see this in chapter 5? Same scene. The elders are worshiping God, singing this song of praise. The angels, the cherubim specifically, join in singing the praise of God. The angels and all of creation join in singing the praise of God. And here it is again in chapter 7. But look at the next verse. It says in verse 13, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these clothed in white robes? Who are they? And where have they come from? And I said to him, My Lord, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation. And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There will be many people saved during the seven years of the tribulation. In fact, I heard one theologian say it this way, he would not be surprised if the revival that happens during the tribulation as people finally see the fullness of God's wrath and judgment is greater than any other time in earth's history. We may see more people saved in that seven years than in any other time in history. And he says, here's a great multitude that could not be counted. And these are the ones that came out of the great tribulation. So people are going to be saved. That's God's purpose. 
Now, specifically, God is using the tribulation to get Israel's attention because that is his target. God wants Israel to return to him. And this time of the tribulation is called by the prophet in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble because God targets Israel specifically during this seven years. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details today. We'll study this as we go along through Revelation. But as we look at the Old Testament prophecy, many of the prophets talk about Israel wanting peace, looking for peace, claiming that they have peace. And yet they say there is no peace. God says there's no peace because you've rejected me. At the beginning of the tribulation, like I said, there's going to be a time of three and a half years when the Antichrist makes a peace treaty with Israel. He will actually defend Israel against their enemies. And they will look at him as their Messiah. That's why he's called the Antichrist. And at the end of the three and a half years, the treaty's broken and it all falls apart. And so they find false peace in a false god, just like they've done for most of their history And they experience judgment because of it. But the tribulation is to bring judgment upon Israel, and it's intended to turn her back to God so that she can be redeemed. Now, I want to point you to a phrase that Paul used, and I'm going to have to hurry here, but go to Romans chapter 11 very quickly, because this is important. Romans chapter 11. Okay, look at verse 25 if you're in Romans chapter 11. This is Paul. He's explaining salvation and the redemption of Israel. He says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that the blindness is in part, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. Now, you've just seen that phrase in Luke chapter 20. Okay, same phrase, fullness of the Gentiles. And then he says in verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. Does that mean all Jews who ever live shall be saved? No, he's saying at the end of the tribulation, when the fullness of the Gentiles, the time of the Gentiles is done, the remnant of Israel that's left over will be redeemed, all of them. And they will go into the kingdom. Now, again, I don't have time to explain it, but if you look at the teaching of Christ and you focus on his parables, all of those parables are geared toward Jews and pointing them to the millennial kingdom. Now, a lot of the principles apply to us as Christians in the church, but the teaching was to the Jews first and then to the Greeks. That's what Jesus said, okay? So all of his parables, all of his teaching was to get Israel to understand he was the Messiah. He was going to set up his kingdom, and only those who followed him would end up in that kingdom. And by the time we get to the end of the tribulation, there's very few of them left. Because actually the Bible tells us, the Old Testament prophecies tells us that two-thirds of all the Jews on the earth during the tribulation are going to be killed. Now, you think about other massacres that have happened to the Jews. They don't compare. But whoever's left, they will come to Christ. 
Paul predicts it right here in Romans chapter 11, verse 25. The tribulation is to bring judgment upon Israel so that they will turn back to God. In Malachi, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. That's Malachi predicting the restoration, the redemption of Israel at the end of the tribulation. And Malachi says the ministry of Elijah was to prepare Israel for the king that was to come. That was his ministry. Same thing for John the Baptist. Jesus said that. In fact, John the Baptist said that. I'm just here to proclaim the one that will come after me. They were, he was, and his message was to the Jews. Most of the people he baptized were Jews. And so he was trying to point them to the Messiah, as God has been doing all throughout their history. But Jesus, the first time he came, did not come to establish an earthly kingdom, and that's where the Jews went wrong. Palm Sunday, why did they accept him and worship him as the Messiah? Because they thought he was going to overthrow Rome and set up his kingdom right then, and then everything would be fine for them. They'd get their land back, they'd get their houses back, they'd be rich again, they'd have a prosperous nation, and he didn't do it. And so they killed him. Now, they treated... Uh, one of the Maccabees family the same way 150 years before because Judas Maccabees came in and overthrew Greece who was established in, uh, in, in Jerusalem at that time. He conquered the citadel which no one had ever been able to do and then took over Jerusalem for the most part for the Jews 150 years before Christ. And Judas Maccabees rode into Jerusalem on a white horse and the people did exactly for him what they did to Christ on Palm Sunday because they were looking for a Messiah who was to set up a physical kingdom. Christ didn't come to do that the first time. But he will the second time. And after the tribulation, when he comes back, that's exactly what he's going to do. But he's telling the Jews all this time, if you're not going to believe in me as the Messiah now, you're not going to get to be part of that kingdom then. That's the message of the New Testament to them. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, we have what's called the new covenant that God gives to Israel. We have a whole series of covenants in the Old Testament that God gives to Israel. The land covenant. There's the covenant of David. There's the Abrahamic covenant. It's different parts of it, okay? But he gives them a new covenant in Jeremiah 33, and he says, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts. I will write it in their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And Jeremiah 31 goes on to explain how Israel will be redeemed, and they will all turn to God. They will all worship him and accept him as Lord. Has that ever happened in history? Not yet. But it will at the end of the tribulation. They will accept him as the, as the Messiah. Jeremiah 31, 33 says, After those days. After what days? the days of the Great Tribulation. Now, the unfortunate part, like I said before, is that Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8 tells us that before that day happens, two-thirds of the Jews who are alive are going to be killed because they don't trust God. So God's purpose for the Great Tribulation is both judgment and redemption for Israel as well as for the Gentiles, but it's specifically targeted to the Jews. Now, here's the last question. I'm going to go through this quickly. Where's the church? 
Well, I already told you, they're in heaven. And I'm pretty sure, based on what Scripture teaches, there's no question about that. We're in heaven before it all starts. Okay? In Revelation, like I said, chapters 4 and 5, we've already seen the elders representing the church worshiping at the throne of God. We're in heaven, worshiping him. Okay? Second, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, I've told you that. The purpose for the tribulation is for earth dwellers. Believers are not earth dwellers. We live here... But as Christ said in his prayer in John 17, I want you to take the earth out of them, but not take them out of the earth. That's what he, in essence, he prayed to his father. We're not geared to the earth. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we are told we have our citizenship in heaven, not on earth. We are not earth dwellers. 1 Peter chapter 1 says we have an inheritance in heaven, not on earth. We are not earth dwellers. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this, We're confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Paul's looking forward to that time when he can be away from this earth and with God in heaven. And the word he uses when he says present with the Lord is interpreted at home. Paul never says that about the earth. He only references home as heaven. And so believers, true believers are not considered earth dwellers, and the judgment is not for us. Third, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, it's talking about those who have turned to God in salvation. And it says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he hath raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And Paul is talking about the wrath, the great tribulation. In nowhere else in the New Testament will you find that definite article attached to the word wrath here. And he's talking about a specific event, the Great Tribulation, that will happen. We are delivered from the wrath to come. And he says we're waiting for his son from heaven. What's the next great thing for the church? The rapture. Now Christ doesn't come to the earth. So it's not his second advent. His second coming is when he comes to the earth. When Christ comes at the rapture, he will be in the clouds and we will meet him in the air. So he never comes back to earth until the second coming. But that's what we're waiting for as the church. And Paul says that in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. So in Revelation chapter 6, we read that this morning. The people who are left on the earth are, are hiding themselves. And it says everybody. It doesn't exclude Christians. Everybody is hiding themselves because of God's wrath. And it says, who shall be able to stand in that day? Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand. Okay? By the time we get to the end of the tribulation, most Christians who have gotten saved during the tribulation have been martyred. So there's not many left, if any. But the church is gone. We've already been saved from the wrath. We've been saved from the judgment. We've specifically also been saved from the tribulation as the church. We will be gone. Now, you have to make a distinction between Israel and the church, and this is my fourth reason that we already saw the purpose of the great tribulation is directed toward unbelievers and toward Israel, not toward, it, not toward believers. So God's church, here, here's God's purpose for the church. He uses us to make Israel jealous. That's what he said. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Remember, this is before they're even in the land. And this is the prophecy that God gives them. 
They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, and I will move them to jealousy with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. That is prophecy about the church. Nobody understood that then, but we do now. God paused his dealings with Israel at Palm Sunday. And for the last 2,000 years, he has focused on the church to make Israel jealous, to draw them back to himself. Now, how will we make Israel jealous? We are his bride. That was supposed to be Israel's position. In the Old Testament, God talks several times about Israel being the bride of God. And in some of the prophets, he says, well, I've divorced them. And Christ now has come to claim the bride of the church, to make Israel jealous. When the rapture happens, Israel will realize all of those people who are the bride are now gone and with Christ. And while they're suffering on earth, we're celebrating our wedding day in heaven. Talk about making somebody jealous. That's the purpose for the church. So that God will be glorified. So that God will turn Israel's heart back to him. And at the end of the tribulation, they're all going to realize what God's doing and say, you're right. We've been wrong all these years and they'll turn back to God. Now, if the church has to go through that same persecution and suffering, what's the point of trying to make Israel jealous? Okay? We've seen the, per- the great tribulation was specifically... One of the purposes is to get Israel's attention, to judge Israel's sin, to turn their hearts back to God, and that's how he does it, because the church is no longer there. And then finally, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, the Bible talks about the one now restraining in the world will be removed from the world. Now, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going to be gone completely from the earth, but think about our current situation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, we're told very clearly that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you. Okay, that's the words that Paul gives us. The Holy Spirit resides in us. We are the temple of the Spirit here. When the church is raptured, the temple of the Spirit is gone. Doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's gone, but it means the temple is gone. And he removes his restraining hand on evil during those seven years so that it just goes rampant. That's why it's going to be so bad. All of the influence that Christians and the church have had on the earth is now removed. And God removes his hand of restraint from Satan, and it just goes wild. And so we're not here during the tribulation. Now, that's the good news for those who believe. We don't have to be afraid. Now, as we get into the details of Revelation, there's a lot of people I know who look at Revelation and go, I I can't handle it. It's too intense. There's just so much turmoil and suffering and destruction and all this stuff. How do you get through it? I mean, that's why it's called the apocalypse, right? Well, how we get through it is we have hope that we're not going to have to suffer through it. Now, I'm not saying God's never going to allow us to have suffering or trial. We know that. But we're not going to go through the great tribulation. And so as we study this and as we read this, that gives us hope. And so as we embark on this exploration of the the events of the Great Tribulation and the end times, we're going to discover some extraordinary and even horrendous things that are going to happen. 
and that things that are going to come to pass on this earth, and for many, it will cause fear. But if we trust the Lord, if we know that he loves us, if we are in his hand, perfect love casts out fear. We know that that judgment is not going to be upon us. We have been spared from that. And so God has given us all of this so that we might understand the extreme judgment that he must execute against sin. Sin is serious in any degree. And God has to judge it. For those people who've placed their trust in Jesus Christ, he's taken that judgment. For those people who haven't, either they're going to die in this life and go to hell, or they're going to live until this day comes and go through the most extreme physical suffering that ever existed in all of human history, and then go to hell. And God gives us revelation so we can experience a little bit and understand a little bit how serious the consequences of sin really are. We cannot take sin in any degree lightly. That's a message of revelation because we see God's judgment on sin. But as believers, we have hope we don't have to go through that. We've been spared from all of that. And you talk about a reason to praise God, talk about a reason to be thankful. We look at our lives today and we complain because we don't have the things we want or the, there's not enough milk in the refrigerator or the car won't start. We have so much to praise God for. And if we compare our lives, even as bad as they are now, with what's coming, that will truly make you thankful. So while Revelation is a book of the apocalypse with judgment and doom at its center, it's also a book of hope for believers. That's why we study it. Not so we can get all the details, so that we can have hope. We know Jesus is alive. We know he reigns and rules. He's in heaven right now interceding for us. He will come and will judge sin on this earth, and he will come and set up his kingdom on this earth. We have all of that to look forward to. But we won't experience the judgment. All we'll experience is the blessing. So let me ask you this question as we close. If Christ comes back today, if he came back right now, then the tribulation will start tomorrow. Will you be suffering the day of wrath on earth, or will you be celebrating your wedding day in heaven? That's the big question of all of this. And that's the only question that matters. Because if we're not ready, we're in trouble. Here's my eschatology in one sentence. Christ is coming back. Are you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And Lord, there's complicated things there, and we don't understand all of the pieces of this. But you've given us a picture to help us to understand what we need to know. And the most important things are the message that you've given us of your mercy and grace to save us from the judgment of sin, not just now in our lives, but for eternity, and specifically to be spared from this great persecution and great tribulation that will come upon the earth. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in each one of our hearts, help us to examine ourselves, to to look deeply and show us 
whether we truly are followers of Christ, whether we truly have put our faith in him, not just in our faith or in what we believe or in what we can do, but our faith is in him. For then we can be assured of our deliverance. So Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us how we should live, knowing what's coming, that we will be diligent in being faithful and also diligent in bringing the truth to those who are lost so they don't have to experience this judgment either. Lord, thank you again for your word. Let it do its work in us today. And may we go forth in your presence and in your blessing. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to close with hymn number 216, Look to the Lamb of God. The chorus says, For he alone is able to save you. And I know it wasn't necessarily a